The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. We will be in Luke 16 for our main text today. Reading through that psalm and, and the warnings about putting your trust in riches and not in the Lord leads me to this question. Who exactly is rich? I mean, who are the rich in the world today? Now, most people these days know that global wealth is unequal and becoming more so, but the latest statistics that illustrate these trends are still mind-boggling no matter how you look at them. There's an article from the Chicago Tribune that was written in 2016, and it made the point clear as it uses data to illustrate. There's lots of ways of comparing the inequality of wealth, which is defined as people's assets, what they own, what they possess, like their savings and property, minus their debts. And and one of those ways is that the riches the world's richest 1% has more wealth than the rest of the globe combined. That is, 1% of the planet's population possesses more wealth than the other entire 99% possess collectively. That's insane. These statistics, this data was gathered from Credit Suisse, who's a data-keeping company that formulates this into charts and all kinds of things for us to be able to digest and understand. Another way of looking at this is that in 2015, three years ago, just 62 people in the world, 62 people, had the same wealth as the poorer half of humanity. That is 3.6 billion people, according to a new report by Oxfam, which is an anti-poverty organization. So there are 62 people on the planet, each of them singularly possessing more than 3.6 billion people on the planet. These 62 people are very, very rich, to be sure. But it's also true that the global bottom half is desperately poor. And for that reason, who really counts among the world's richest, the top 100, the top 1%, the top 10%, is a matter of your perspective. It depends on whether you're judging yourself against your neighbors, your fellow citizens, or the entire world's population. So let's look at it on a graph here. This pie chart sort of divides up the wealth of the world, okay? And you can see from the the dark green there that the percentage of the population that possesses less than $10,000 in net wealth is 71%. So 71% of the global population possesses less than 
$10,000 in net wealth. Okay? The next tier up are those that, from, that possess in net wealth between $10,000 and $100,000. That's 21% of the population. And then the next tier up, those that possess from $100,000 to a million dollars, that's 7% of the population and a little bit of change. And then those that possess a million dollars plus are 1% of the population. 1% of the population. Now, we all kind of, I think, maybe know that this is true when we consider the global poor, but let's see it when, when we see it displayed side by side to help us really get our, our minds around this with the percentage of global net wealth in total. Those statistics that I read previously. So over there you see the same chart. Less than 10,000 is 71%. Less than 100,000 and between 10 and 100,000 is 21%. And then you have the 7% that's 100 to a million. And then the million plus is 1%. But I want you to see the inversion here. You ready? So 40%, it corresponds with the 7%. And 45% corresponds with the 1%. That is, those that make or have from 100000 to a $1 million and a $1 million plus possess 85% of the entire net wealth of the planet. Those, the smallest pie slices on the left, own the largest pie slices on the right. That's insane. Now, question for you. Before we turn this slide off, and we all alleviate our conscience, where do you fit on that chart? Are you in the 71%? Do you own a net wealth less than $10,000? Or maybe perhaps you're in the next tier up. You're you're one of the the people who is in that 21% that own from $10,000 to $100,000 in net wealth. Question. Let's say, just by nature of the place that you were born, the providence of God, his grace and blessing in your life. You were born into a country, a place, a citizenry, where the average for you puts you in at least in the 21%. Compared to the rest of the global economy, are you rich or are you poor? I don't know about you guys, but it turns out I'm rich. Now, I never think of myself in that way. I, you know, I look around and I'm, and I'm comparing myself with other people who are wealthier than I, and I go, oh yeah, I'm, I'm definitely not a millionaire, I'm, I'm poor. But the truth of the matter is that my life experience and the overarching experience that I have in this world as it relates to the things that I own, as it relates to the experiences that I have had in life, have been 
on the side of wealth and prosperity. In a way that 71% of the world's population does not experience. Another study that was quoted by CNBC from this year says this, if you have a net worth of $71,560, so if you have enough possessions, we're talking home and cars and the the things inside of your house, bank accounts, retirement, saving, if if all of that balances out with your debt and you end up with a value above $71,560, you are in the top 10% of the global economy. Another way to look at this is if you have $2,220 in your bank account, $2,220, if you have that much in savings and checking, then you are wealthier than 50% of the planet. So, here's where we're headed today. We're going to talk about this story that Jesus gave to some rich Pharisees. And instead of identifying with the poor, which I think is sort of the default setting for all of us, I I, I want us to identify with the rich crowd. The crowd that Jesus is talking to. I want us to hear the words, the teaching, the instruction of Jesus to these rich Pharisees. And I want us to allow those words now to penetrate our hearts and cause us to think about the incredible privilege of the life that God has given us and how it is that he might have us steward it for his glory. Let's hear the words of Jesus to them and to us. And so this will be our outline for those that wish to take notes. All of our subpoints today will fit under these main headings here. So Luke 16, we're going to break it down like this, verses 1 through 18, which we'll do an overview of because it was already taught in a previous teaching, is the context of the passage. Verses 19 through 21 is the contrast in life. So when we get into the parable of the rich man Lazarus, we're going to see their contrast in life, verses 19 through 21. Verses 22 to 26, the contrast in death. Again, verses 22 to 26, for those of you that are writing this down, the contrast in death. And verses 27 to 31, the conclusion in eternity. The conclusion in eternity eternity. So there's our framework. Those are our file folders, and we'll kind of fit things into there so that it's easy to keep track of for us mentally. So first of all, diving in, the context of the passage. I'm going to give you really two categories for the context of the passage. First of all, the historical context. What was happening in the history? What's the temperament? Why, why, do, we, why do we need to understand that this was important to Jesus? What's, what, it is, what is it that he's combating there? And then we're going to look at the textual context. What is happening in the text? Who is he talking to? And, and why does he give this story about the rich man and Lazarus? So, historical context. So starting right there. Generosity was a command in the Old Testament that started with, really, the formation of Israel. 
You'll remember that actually when Abraham encountered a king named Melchizedek after returning from a war, this king, Melchizedek, who was both a king and a priest to the living God, Abraham meets him and and his immediate response, his worshipful response to what God had done in delivering Abraham was to give a tenth of all of his possessions unto Melchizedek as a way of saying, God, you have blessed me. You've been so good to me. And he just is responding to this victory that happens in his life. Well, later on in the books of Moses, as God is laying out for the children of Israel after their departure from Egypt, and they are preparing to enter into the promised land, God is giving them values that will rule, or ethics that will rule them as a people in this new promised land. A a, a group of people that he says will be like representatives, ambassadors to the rest of the world, what it looks like when people are ruled by God. Now, he gives them lots of commands. There's a a great number of commands, and many of them are, you know, moral, but many of them are just practical. Many of them just have to do with everyday life. Things like if if you have a rooftop porch, put a railing on the outside of it. If somebody comes over and they fall off your rooftop porch, and they break a neck or break their leg or whatever, that responsibility to keep them safe really falls upon the homeowner. So make sure that you take care of that. There were other rules. Rules like, um, hey, when you have to poop, don't do it in the camp. Do it outside of the camp. Because it's, it's, it's a real bummer for everybody else when you get up in the middle of the night to walk through camp and you find out that your neighbor has been there before you. That's highly practical, don't you think? I mean, God is very practical, but the ethic that is ruling these rules, the thing, the motivator behind these rules is what? Love, right? Love for your neighbor. God gave commands to the people of Israel that when they came into the land and they were going to harvest their fields, that one of the things that they needed to do was leave the corners of the field unharvested. And that was for the poor. Those that were, that were less fortunate than them could come into other people's fields and the corners would be left with fruit, left with grain or barley or whatever vegetable was growing. The corners of their field would be left with this fruit and the poor could come in and they would have provision in that. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 12, God says, I want you to care particularly for those that are disadvantaged in this life. I want you to declare, I want you to care for the Levite. Remember, the Levite was one, this one makes sense to all of us. The Levite was one who served in the house of God and they were not afforded an inheritance in the land of promise. They didn't have land to work, they didn't have farms, they had no way to provide for themselves. They were dependent because their lives were devoted to the service of the temple in that way. The provision that was made for them was provided for by God through the people that he would give through them to provide for the needs of the Levites. And then he adds on these other categories. These other categories are 
the poor, the fatherless, the widow, the stranger or the sojourner or the alien who is among you. He says, I want you to care for them too. As a matter of fact, I'm so passionate about this that the tithe, the tenth that you bring in, according to Deuteronomy chapter 26, should go to that purpose. It should be dedicated to that end, to caring for those who do not have. Now, this became really an outworking, a sign, if you will, of righteousness. And as a matter of fact, in the Septuagint, in the Old Testament, the writings of the Old Testament, the word that was used for this generosity, this giving, the benevolent heart, became synonymous with the word righteousness. So that by the time of Jesus, when people would say, have you done your righteousness? The idea was, as an expression of your right life with God, you would care for the poor. There were really three signs of righteousness. One of them was your almsgiving, giving to the poor. The other one was fasting. And the third one was prayer. And if you were doing those things, those were considered a demonstration of having a right heart with God. So by the time of Jesus, the Pharisees had developed all kinds of ways to get around the command to be generous. Oftentimes, they would say that their, their money was Corban, or dedicated to the Lord. And they said this in order to not be able to care for the people around them. So there was this other command in the Old Testament that said, honor your father and your mother. And this was sort of a built-in retirement welfare system, right? The idea of honoring them meant that you would provide for them financially when they were no longer able to provide for themselves. I mean, when grandpa couldn't go out and, and work in the field any longer because he was physically unable to do so, the, the responsibility to care for grandpa fell upon the son, fell upon the family. That was their job to take care of the elderly among them. But what the Pharisees did, because they loved money, and they were stingy, they didn't want to give it up, is they said, oh, Dad, I'd love, to, I'd love to help you out, but gosh, all the money that I have is Corban, or dedicated unto the Lord. And it's God's money, and I can't take God's money and give it to you. It's used for God's purposes. Well, how will you use it? Well, I don't know. I'll, let me pray about it. And they would withhold caring for their parents, by saying that it was dedicated to God. It was, a way, it was a workaround for the command of God. And Jews, Jesus repudiates this religious culture of his time for being so careful because as a value point, they said, oh, well, God wants us to tithe. Let, we have to keep this commandment. And so they would, they would tithe of mint and of cumin. Can you imagine that? I mean, they were so obsessive about like, we got to keep the command but they're still trying to find this workaround, right? And so they would, they would get cumin out, and they dump their cumin all over the countertop. And they're like, okay, one cumin for God. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Cumin for me. And they would go through their spices that way. Or mint leaves. He talks about the fact that they tithe of mint. 
Right? Can you, can you imagine the ridiculousness of this? Like, I have to keep the command. I have to keep the command. So here's what I'm going to do. God, I, I owe God. I've got to give him the, the, the tithe of mint. So one mint leaf for God. And one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Nine mint leaves for me. And one mint leaf. And they would sit down and obsess over giving to God. And then he says, you, you obsess over the smallest thing like cumin and mint, but you leave out the weightier matters of the law like justice. And he says in Luke 11, verse 42, the love of God. Justice is care for the poor, care for the powerless, and he says the love of God. Verse 42 of Luke chapter 11. Jesus came hard against this cultural setting, against the stingy religious culture that saw giving as some sort of obligation or as a means of, of, of blowing their horn or, or, or demonstrating how, how religious or, or lofty that they were in their faith. Instead of it being a means by which God would demonstrate his love and his justice to the world around them. You remember in Matthew chapter 6 when Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, beware of practicing your righteousness. There's that phrase again, he's stealing that phrase from the Old Testament synonymous with giving to the poor and caring for the poor. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you'll have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward. Right? Jesus is talking about the kind of selfless giving that's not worried about what it looks like to the rest of the world. It's only concerned about, does this demonstrate the love of God in this moment? Does this show God's heart to those that need to know the kind of benevolent God I serve? And so we have the historical context. Let's take a look then at the contextual context context. That is, what is happening there in the, in the book of Luke? Well, in this passage, Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees that love money and use the law in such a way as to try and get out of having to have a generous heart. You see, the command was to move people towards having an open and generous heart to demonstrating what God's love is like in practical ways. But the Pharisees used the command as a way to not have to love. You see how it works? See how the human heart twists that? So Jesus steps into the middle of this context and he's speaking to those that are, that are trying to find a way to get out of having to have a generous heart. And then he just finishes telling them this parable about a dishonest steward who cheats his master in order to prepare for his future unemployment. And he makes this statement in, in verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation 
than the sons of light. So here's, here's the story. If Perhaps you missed it last week. The story is really simply this. There's a guy who's very wealthy and he's got a money manager, right, who works for him. And the money manager isn't doing a very good job. And so uh, this master of the house decides he's going to get rid of him. The money manager hears about it. And he goes, okay, i got to find, you know, like, I've been doing a desk job my whole life. I got noodles for arms, and I've been sitting behind a desk. I've got a little, little paunchy belly, and, you know, I'm not cut out for digging ditches. There's no way I could go back to construction, how am I going to survive? He's thinking about his future, right? So he, he, he comes up with this idea. He says, okay, to the guys who owe his master, come on in here, come on in here. But how much do you owe? Oh, you owe X amount of dollars? Okay, well, let's just write off a certain amount of this debt, and you write that down, and I'll write this down, and we'll lock it in and, and be on your way. And then he calls in another guy, and he does the same thing, reducing debt and reducing debt. And his thought is, when I'm out of a job here, I can go hit these guys up right? And I can get a job in the future because of the kindness that I have shown to them in caring for them in this moment. (laughs) Now Jesus uses that story to say, listen, the godless in this world think more about their temporary future then the sons of light think about their eternal future. They put more care into their temporary future than the sons of light put into their eternal future. It's like they're making no provision for what's coming. And so Jesus, in highlighting this reality makes the meaning here clear. People in the world sinfully prepare for their future and often have more invested in caring for their temporary future as sons of light than in preparing for their eternal future. And then he encourages this audience to consider how they might use what he calls unrighteous money or mammon to perform righteous deeds with an eternal reward. And he, and he says the reason for this is so that when money fails, and money always fails, it's not eternal, it has an end point, it will not satisfy ultimately. When it lets humanity down that the money was used in such a way that it goes on to reward them in the future. In verses 14 through 18, the Pharisees hear this. Notice what it says here. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And they said to him, You are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. For what's exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets, they were until John the Baptist. So God was ruling under the Old Testament, through the law and through the prophets, he was, he was repudiating Israel's stinginess and their lack of care for the poor, the fatherless, the widow, the stranger that was among them. He rebuked those things over and over and over again through the prophets. And he says, but now the kingdom of God is actually here. 
from John the Baptist forward. Like you're, you're living with the king in your presence. They were living for a kingdom that would come. You are living with the king in your presence. Do you see the contrast there? He's like, you better get this right. It's kind of important. You better nail this. Because God doesn't just look at the outside, what you're doing, whether or not you're giving. He's looking at the inside. Are you loving those to whom you give? Are you representing him? Does your belief in the king and his kingdom translate out to action in the world? He says, the law and the prophets were until John, verse 16, and the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it, but it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. So in other words, just because the kingdom's here doesn't mean the values have changed. It's the same values from here to here, loving God's people, loving your neighbor in the same way that God has loved you. And then he uses another example. He says, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Here's kind of the big idea there. He's saying uh, to his audience who is not happy that they can't use the law as a cloak for sin as it relates to money or to lust. You see, there was this provision in the Old Testament that allowed for divorce in the case of adultery. And what the Pharisees did and what the religious people did, they said, oh, God allows for a divorce, so then I'm going to upgrade, right? And they would try and find some way to make their, their, their spouse be, you know, evil in their sight, if you will. Oh, she burned the eggs. Duh! I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. They'd say it three times, and then that was it. And then they'd move on to the next person. And it was a way for them to say, well, I'm keeping the command of the Old Testament. He's like, listen, this mentality is a cover for your own lust. It's a cover for your own lust. You're using the commandment to try and find a way to justify your behavior instead of seeing the heart of commitment that God has called you to. See, they were using the scriptures to justify themselves, and Jesus rebukes it. And then Jesus breaks then into this story or parable. There's a lot of debate in church history as to, was this a real event, or was this just a parable? And, and scholars debate. One church father even goes as far as to name the rich man, and it says, I know who it was. It was this guy, Dives, right? And and uh, there's a lot of debate that goes back and forth, and I'm not going to get into that. The one thing that I will say is that I have to admit that the point of this passage was something that did not really stand out to me until preparing for this teaching. I think it's because there's, there's, there's so much in this passage, in this story, that is about the afterlife, and it's, it's kind of fascinating to me, right? 
It's like, okay, what comes next? What happens after we die? And so there's this story about this rich man. He dies, and he enters into Sheol. Sheol has two compartments. There's a chasm that, that runs between the two, and in the one part are the unrighteous who are suffering, and this other part is a place where the saints are hanging out, and Abraham is kicking it, and he's greeting people as they come through and embracing them, if you will, and there's a place of comfort and a place of torment, and they're both conscious of what is happening. They're both conscious of the reality that their actions in life have had eternal consequence. And I got caught up in all of that, but I, I miss like what, what is really happening here. Why is Jesus telling this story? Miss the forest for the trees. And so this story of the rich man and Lazarus isn't primarily a treatise on the nature of the afterlife. It's actually more about how we care for those around us. In contrast, in the contrast of the rich man and Lazarus, Jesus is trying to provoke the hardened heart of an audience that loves money more than it loves people. An audience that loves money more than it loves people. So verses 19 through 21, let's take a look at the contrast of the rich man and Lazarus in life. Verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and in fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked up his sores. So let's look at the contrast in life here. First of all, they're covering. The rich man is covered in what? Purple and fine linen. This was the really nice wardrobe of the day. This was, you know, not the Nordstrom rack, right? This was like Nordstrom's proper. This, this is where they, they went and they got name brand, nice clothing, and they looked good on the outside, and the purple was a, was a high-priced dye, and, and, uh, and the fine linen wasn't just like sackcloth, which was more of like a burlap, roughly woven together fabric that was kind of scratchy on the skin, but fine linen was this really finely woven, like Egyptian cotton sheets. Like, think of that, right? And they would wear that and live this life in comfort. So the, the rich man's covering is purple and linen. What, what's the poor man covered with? Sores. Can you imagine that? Just covered with sores? How, how, how much time did he spend just like shooing away flies, right? Trying to keep the dogs off of him. Look at the contrast of their convenience. The rich man feasted, the word says here, verse 19, sumptuously every day. Okay, I want you to picture this. Here's the rich man compound right? Rich man compound has a gate. 
40 yards behind the gate is the mansion, the rich man's house. Every day, Lazarus' buddies take his sore-covered body and lay him at the, the gate of the rich man's house so that both the rich man can see Lazarus and Lazarus can see the rich man. And Lazarus is hoping that maybe the rich man will, will give him a little something. This is their existence. Between them, this wall, this gate, separates a life of suffering and a, and a life of bliss. I imagine, if you will, Lazarus laying on the ground, peeking around through the gate. And, and, and in the crevice of the gate, he sees through to the compound, and there in the, in the compound is the rich man, and in front of him is all this food, like a spread that is sumptuous. There's grapes, turkey legs, there's no bacon, it's unfortunate. There's everything that a poor man would desire, right? And, and the rich man is just like casually, he's like in a reclined position, laying down, eating from the table. His servants are fanning him. He's like living sumptuously. Whatever that means, I'm sure it's good. And Lazarus is peering through the gates, through the slats in between, and he can see, and he goes, oh, man. And as he's watching, the rich man gets like, oh, I am so stuffed. He's rubbing his belly. I can't eat anymore. Away with it, he says. So the servants come along, and they, they, they grab all the scraps from the table, and they start scooping it into a, a, a basket or a bucket to take outside and dump and the, the poor man Lazarus thinks to himself oh if I could just eat his garbage if I could just enjoy his garbage the rich man feasted daily and the poor star was starved and tormented notice not only that but their custom the rich daily lived in ignorance and bliss, and the poor Lazarus daily lived in begging and sorrow. And I mean ignorance in the truest sense of the word. He can see Lazarus outside of his gate every time he leaves. What does he do, though? He ignores. In and out, day after day, as long as Lazarus is laid there, day after day, he walks by Lazarus. Later on in the parable, we'll find out that the rich man even knows Lazarus' name. He recognizes him. He's like, hey, tell Lazarus to come dip his finger in some water. Like, I remember him. He used to sit out my, outside of my gate. Notice the contrast in life. The, the rich man has this covering of purple and fine linen and Lazarus is covered with sores. The rich man has this convenience where he feasts daily and lives sumptuously and the poor man is starved and tormented by the sight of this food and opulence every day. The rich man has this custom of living in ignorance and bliss and the poor man is constantly aware of his condition living to beg and living with sorrow so much so that even the dogs 
don't respect him. They come and lick his wounds. Isn't this the kind of thing that 1 John chapter 3 warns us about? You don't have to turn there. I'll, I'll, I'll just turn there and read it to you. In 1 John chapter 3, the apostle is describing for us how amazing the love of God is. In chapter 3, verse 16, he says this, By this we know, love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And then he continues, verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, verse 18, he says, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed, action, and in truth from the heart. Can you see how differently that passage reads when we realize the heart of God for the poor? How he cares for them. How he loves them. So we see the contrast in life, but let's look also at the contrast in death. We'll look at three things, their departure, their arrival, and their experience. Beginning in verse 22, and the poor man died. He was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father, Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those uh, who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there unto us. So notice their contrast in death. First of all, their departure. Lazarus, the poor man, apparently dies and nobody is there to take care of him. There's no record of his burial. There's no accounting of any pomp or circumstance or any sort of celebration of his life. He just is gone one day and nobody notices. The rich man, on the other hand, is buried by his family. So, so think about this reality. The Lazarus, the poor man, dies. Nobody knows. Nobody cares. God just sends the angels to carry him away. The rich man, on the other hand, they would hire mourners, right? People that would weep and wail. Ah! You know, like, have you ever seen maybe footage of the Middle East where you'll see gals that are dressed in, in black headdresses and you'll see them like, ah, 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 you know, they're like screaming into the air. That's like professional mourning. That was the kind of thing that would happen. 
And these professional mourners would follow through and they, they dug out this hole in the ground and they took his body and they wrapped it in fine fabrics with oils and ointments and all of these things and they stuffed it gently in this hole and they grieved for a certain amount of time and there was pomp and there was circumstance over the loss of that life and with Lazarus there was nothing except the eye of God. That's their departure. Notice their arrival. But Lazarus, the poor is greeted by Abraham. He's carried away to Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom, the idea being that Father Abraham, the the father of Israel, is there waiting as Lazarus comes in and he just like grabs a hold of him and receives him into his bosom, hugs him, well done, good job, come in, be comforted, be loved. And the rich man was in Hades, verse 23, being in torment. The poor was greeted by the saints. The rich was greeted by suffering and isolation. Notice their experience. The poor man had the comfort of the saints. And the rich man lived in anguish. So much so, conscious, eternal torment in this place. So much so, he's like, just send the man that used to have sores all over his body, the one that the flies were on, the one that the dogs, like, send him, have him dip his finger in some water and just bring it over and just stick his finger over my mouth and just drip one little drip of water. It's the kind of torment that he was in. He's just desperate for escape. Their experience was so vastly different. Remember in verse 24 when the, the rich man calls out and he says, Father Abraham. In other words, I'm a Jew. I'm of the, of the house of Israel. Abraham is my father. Father Abraham. Send him to me. And though Abraham, the father of faith, was a relation by blood to this rich man, the faith that Abraham had was never part of the rich man's life. For if it had been, his heart would have broken for the poor. Notice their contrast in death, their experiences. The poor receives comfort, the rich lives in anguish. And Abraham finally says to the rich man, child, in other words, You are a Jew by descent, but you're not a Jew by action. Remember that you in your lifetime received good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And fourthly, let's consider the conclusion in eternity. We'll look at three things. First of all, the permanence. Second of all, the plea. And thirdly, the predicament. First of all, the permanence. The gulf is fixed. It cannot be overcome. You see, once death sealed their lives, 
Whatever their destination is after that is permanent. It cannot be overcome. Lazarus is permanently in comfort. The rich man is permanently in torment. And it cannot be overcome. The gulf is fixed. As the rich man pleads and realizes that he'll receive no comfort, he has a second request beginning in verse 27. He said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, Well, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And the story abruptly ends. The plea comes. This place is so permanent. Send word to my family that they would make eternal investments, that they would would take their life and pour it into that which is eternal and not into that which is temporary. Let them know Abraham's response. Nope, they have enough already recorded for them in the Old Testament, in the law and in the prophets. They have enough to know what God's heart is. It's enough. It's sufficient. Even somebody raising from the dead is not going to convince them because it's not a matter of convincing. It's a matter of a hardened heart. They're not lacking information, rich man. They're lacking repentance. Then comes the predicament. The living have everything they need to know and they only have one life to live. The rich have everything they need to know. Guys, the rich, me, have everything they need to know about God's heart for the poor. The issue is not information. The issue is application. As I thought about the reality of how heavy this passage hits home, I can recall how many times I've felt that awkward moment like when you come to the end of a street and somebody is there with a sign. And you have that internal conflict, right? Like, oh, what do I do? What, like, if, am I helping a situation or am I making it worse? And, you know, you, how, what kind of discernment should I own? If I give away everything all the time, then I'll have nothing. And what does that look like? And what are the limits of giving? And you know what? The Bible never gives us an answer. Why do you think that is? Because God wants us to be led by Him. To go, God, I'm willing. My heart is generous. My heart is open to you. Show me. 
Show me where I can give. Show me where I can bless. Show me where I can take all that you have entrusted to me and use it for your glory in this world. Show me how the loving and benevolent God who took me out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, saved me and put me in his house and made me his own. Show me, God, how I can take that same love and begin to live that out in life. James, the half-brother of Jesus, speaks directly to the church. And let me read this passage to you from James in James chapter 2. In James 2, he says this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have any works? Can that faith really save him? Like if he really trusts in what God is telling him, but then he does nothing with it, is that a saving faith? He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, shalom. Be warmed, be filled. without giving them the things that they need for the body? What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is, you ready for this? Dead. A faith that is in theory only and never works its way out in love practically is dead faith. It's the faith of the rich man. It's a faith that grabs onto a name, Israel, Jew, Christian, but never grabs a hold of the heart of God. You see, a name without works leads to death. A faith without works leads to death. If you believe in Jesus' kingdom, but don't surrender to Jesus' rule, then you will perish. That's for real. That's the real truth. To name the name only and not surrender to the working of Jesus is not faith. You see, Jesus was rich, but he gave it all. Jesus wore a purple robe as well as a crown of thorns. Jesus didn't just sit at his own table and feast, but he prepared a table for us. Jesus gave up his comfort to come and meet us at the gates. 
Jesus fulfilled all that the law and prophets required for those that didn't. Jesus suffered and died, enduring the consequence of our sin. Jesus rose from the dead, the same request that Lazarus made, and he presented himself to the world, or the rich man made, excuse me, and he presented himself to the world as proof of the heart of God. And then Jesus gave two commands. You ready? Here they are. Believe, command one. Command two, follow. Believe and follow. Become my disciples. Guys, Jesus gave this command to believe and to follow, and quite frankly, it's now our move. He's done it all that he needs to do to demonstrate the heart of who he is. Now we have to respond. So we're going to pray real quick. I'm going to ask us to do something that requires a little bit of bravery, and we're going to pray in this fashion. We're going to do two things. One, we're going to ask God to soften our hearts to those that are less fortunate than, than we are. And two, we're going to ask God to present opportunities where we can love the world around us in the same way that he has loved us. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, this word is so straightforward to the Pharisees, to those that have, to those that are wealthy. And it's so straightforward to me. You love the poor, the orphan, the widow, the stranger, the alien among us. And it is your heart that we would demonstrate the same kind of love that you have demonstrated for us. It is your heart that your love would flow through us as we become a conduit to the world, an introduction to who you are, tangibly, not just in theory, not just in attitude, but in deed, God. So give us a faith that works. Give us a faith that labors. Give us a faith that makes changes. It makes a difference and represents you well. Father, with these hearts here and in agreement with your word, would you present us opportunities to love the world around us? Lord, show us how we can be your hands. Father, show us how we can meet needs practically. And some of us, that will be financially. Others, it will be through volunteerism and feed my starving children and uh, the, the lots of ways that you, you can get, a, get involved in our community and caring for those that have been orphaned, those who have been abandoned. Or maybe it's a neighbor who's been widowed, that friend, God, who just needs an extra hand. Lord, highlight those places in our 
valley and in our lives where we can actually bring your love tangibly to the world around us and keep us from falling into the pitfall of the rich man who divorced his private life from his religious life. May our faith produce fruit for your kingdom and for your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful, wonderful day.